I'd ask if you will now to turn to the fifth chapter of Ephesians as we continue to work our way through this wonderful epistle of Paul the Apostle, which we have referenced as the Ascension Epistle. And you will remember that it was not only written to the Ephesians, but almost certainly was a circular letter that was sent from church to church uh, along with, uh, with another uh, early in uh, the history of, of um, the revelation of the New Testament. Now I'm thinking that even though we're beginning with verse 15 through 21, we really should go back and pick it up at verse 1 so that we recall the entirety of the context. Let's pray before reading. We ask, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit will be at work to illumine the page of Scripture, open our hearts, help us to be enabled to even set aside the deepest concern and to set our attention and our minds, our hearts, our affections, our wills, our focus now upon the text that is before us and help us to see Christ in this text and to understand how it applies to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now we take up the text from here today. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Now you'll recall that the theme that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this section is the theme of walking, that is to say the Christian's manner of life. And we see that he uses that metaphor of walking consistently. Look back at chapter 4 verse 17. 
Now this I say and testify on the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In chapter 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In chapter 5 verse 8, for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In verse 15, our text today, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. But going all the way back to the second chapter in verse 1, the Apostle Paul dealt with this theme of walking, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, of course, we've come to know God through Christ. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So the Apostle Paul is saying that the Christians walk, our manner of life. Yes, our behavior is extremely important, and that the Bible addresses that behavior. And over these past few weeks we have seen how it addresses sexual immorality and, and crude joking and how we are to walk in the light and expose the darkness. And today we come to the section in which he tells us that we're to walk in wisdom. He says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So how does the wise Christian walk look? What does it mean? And the Apostle Paul tells us several things. The very first thing that he says is, if you're going to walk wisely as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are to redeem the time. Redeem the time. Look again at verse 16. Making the best use of the time. Literally in the Greek text, it is redeem the time. Not making the best use of, even though that's application. It is redeem the time. You are to buy up the time because the days are evil. The Spirit-filled Christian then knows the time in which he lives. Now this verse is usually interpreted this way. Use the time that's ticking on your watch carefully. Buy up every opportunity. Now that's application, and it's a good and right application, but it is not the meaning of the text. When the Apostle Paul uses the term the time, he's talking eschatology. He's thinking about the time between the ascension of Christ, the return of Christ. He's looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And he is saying to us Christians, you are to redeem that time. The time that the church now has to live for Christ and work for Christ and to spread the gospel. That is the time that we are to take seriously. That is the time that we are to redeem. So the Spirit-filled person discerns his place in history. He understands what time it is. What does this mean? Well, let me say several things. First of all, to redeem the time means that you recognize that the days are evil. That's what Paul says here in this verse, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time because the days are evil. I know that as a Christian I function in this present evil age, which Galatians 1.4 tells me I have been delivered from by the blood of Jesus. This is the age upon which will come God's wrath. I do not want to identify with that age. I don't want to act like it, look like it, feel like it, think like it. I belong to the age to come. And so I understand that this age is a present evil age. 
And then, in the second place, the wise Christian understands that we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, Paul puts it that way in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and it's repeated virtually that way in Hebrews 9, 26. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That is to say, there are two kingdoms that are juxtaposed. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of light, already referenced in verse 8 when he said, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The eternal kingdom of Christ is here, has arrived in principle as a present reality. The time of which we are to make every opportunity is then the between times between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. That's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13 when he says, Beside this you know the time and the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And of course he means the return of Christ is nearer to us than when we first believed. So the wise, the spirit-filled Christian recognizes the global conflict in which we are engaged, the war for the hearts and minds of men, and it is that concept of time that is behind Paul's call in 2 Corinthians 6-2 when he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor Now is the day of salvation. He means the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ is the day in which we evangelize the lost and we spread the gospel. Most importantly then, when Paul uses the term the time, the wise Christian understands that the resurrection and ascension of Jesus has ushered in the end of the ages. And if this is so, should this not exercise more of a controlling and transforming influence on your everyday walk and mine? Paul is saying, in effect, look up, live in expectancy of the return of Christ. That is what characterizes the time in which you now live, and let that influence the way in which you live, think, act, and behave in this present evil age. I've often said it this way, that there are these two poles. There is the pole of the cross, resurrection, and ascension. We look to the past. And there is this other pole of the Christian life, which is the return of Jesus. And we are set between these two poles. And so we look back and we are anchored in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A future has been given with the past, and that future is something that is certain Jesus will return and take us to be with him. Pastor MacDonald has taken that illustration and he has added to it with the young people this. If you have the, the raging sea and the water in between the two poles and you are that boat, if that boat is tied to those two poles then the water may rise and ebb and flow and there may be great danger, but the boat is safe if it is anchored to the first and to the last pole. And that's what Paul is saying to you about the time. You live between those poles. You are anchored to those two poles. That is to determine how you think, how you live, and how you act. It's to determine your ethics. That's what Paul means when he says redeem the time because the days are evil. It's his rich eschatological thought that is poured into that one verse. He means all of that and more. So let me give you some illustrations of Paul's use of time. 
we can think of it this way. The progression of Christ in history is to his incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, but also to his return at the end of time. So the Christian life is determined by the great themes of Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and Ascension and Pentecost and the Second Advent. We then can think of that time in which we live as a book. Redemptive history is like a book. The body of the book is God's great redemptive acts in Christ, but the epilogue to the book is being written right now. The supremely important redemptive events are accomplished all but one, and that one is the return of Christ at the end of time. The book then, the epilogue, has yet to be written, or is being written. The book has not yet concluded. Another way to think of Paul's use of time is to think of a clock. There you have on the clock the various settings going from 12 to 12. But in God's eschatological clock, the, dis- the distinction between the minutes and the seconds may be quite different than it is on the clock or the watch that is on your wrist. 11.55 is where we are. 12 o'clock is next. But on God's clock, the space between the time may vary. The important thing is that 12 o'clock is next. Paul's point is that the next big event on God's eschatological clock is the return of Jesus Christ. Or another way to think of Paul's understanding of time is to think of night and day. The night is advanced, Paul says in Romans 13. The day approaches I've illustrated it this way. I used to run in early morning, and when I would run, I would begin my run when it was pitch black. Somewhere along the line, there was this struggle between night and day, and when I returned home, I returned in the full blaze of the morning light. The Apostle Paul says that struggle between night and day, coming into the full blaze of the return of Christ, is where you are in history. That is the time in which you live. That is what he means when he says, redeem the time, for the days are evil. Now, if we can sit here and be unmoved, I think the reason is because Paul's understanding of things and what motivated the early Christians in the first century of the church is quite different than ours, unhappily. And that's not a good thing, because that means that we are not walking carefully. We are not walking wisely. To walk wisely and carefully means using the time between 11.55 and 12 o'clock, and to use it well. So how do we use the time wisely? How do we redeem the time because the days are evil? Let me give you some ways. You redeem the time by letting it inform and determine your ethics. Now keep your finger here and turn to Romans 13. Romans 13 really is an elaboration of the point that he's making here in Ephesians in one verse. And in Romans 13, beginning with verse 11, you will see the connection between the return of Christ and Christian ethics. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. Besides this, You know the time. You see the the word? The time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation, and here he means the return of Christ, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. 
So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So you see back here in chapter 5, when he says in verse 2, sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. When he says, let no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. When he goes on and he speaks of the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience and that we are not to associate with them. And he says in verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And he says that we are to expose evil. What's pervading Paul's thinking here is the point to which he comes in the verse that we've read this morning, verse 15. That your Christian ethics, how you are to live, must be determined by your recognition that the return of Jesus Christ is impending. Now it may be tomorrow, it may be next week, it may be next year, or it may be three million years from now. It doesn't matter. Every generation of Christians should live as if we are the generation in which Christ may return. The point is that it's 1155 and that 12 o'clock is the next big event on God's program. So let that inform you and determine your ethics. But you also use the time wisely when you live in view of the judgment seat of Christ. Which is another way of saying the return of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Yes, the Christian's life is not only determined by the love of God for him and his love for his Lord, but also the fact that we will give an account for what we do for the deeds of the body when Christ returns. We also use the time wisely when we seek to promote missions. 2 Corinthians 6 2, behold, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. The time in which we live is the time for missions, in which the gospel is spread and God is redeeming to himself a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. And we use the time wisely by living as a part of something bigger than we are. Do you remember in chapter 1 of Ephesians in verses 9 and 10 when the apostle said, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And I pointed out to you that God has a wise plan, a revealed plan, a comprehensive plan, an invincible plan, a self-glorifying plan. And that plan is that Christ, who is the Lord of history, because he has made us to be a member of a new world order, that you live in the newness of life, the world of resurrection, your citizenship is in heaven, your affections are on things above, you are in union with Christ, you belong to the age that is coming, and this is the only thing worth living for. So you use the time wisely when you get into your mind and into your heart the reality of the vast sweeping plan of God for the ages and understand that the way in which you live for Christ now has a part to play 
and that vast, sweeping, comprehensive plan. Now, Gerhardus Voss has said it well. He said this, The gauge of health in the Christian is the degree of his gravitation to the future eternal world. Let me put it more simply. You are a healthy Christian if you live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. You are not a healthy Christian if you're not living that way. And that is what he means when he says in verse 15 that you are to redeem the time because the days are evil. He's not simply saying buy up every opportunity. That's application. He's saying we need to understand the time in which we live. Do you get it? Do you understand this? I can preach the whole point over again. (laughs) This is important because I would venture to say the entirety of the New Testament to one degree or another, and all of Paul's epistles in particular, are predicated on this idea. You won't get the New Testament. You will not understand Paul and how it applies to your life if you don't understand what he means by the time. Second point. Now we're seeing how we are to walk wisely. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. And the second point is, you're walking wisely by being filled with the Spirit. So be filled with the Spirit is the next point that Paul brings up. In verse 18 he says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, why the comparison between drunkenness and the Spirit-filled life? You ever asked that question? Paul probably had in mind the orgies that were precipitated by the abuse of wine and the worship of false gods. For in the ancient world, it was thought that if you used narcotics and drugs and alcohol, that it was precipitous to a spiritual state. I think he has that in mind. Whether he did or not, he certainly has in mind the idea of control. Men under the control of alcohol often seek escape under the temporary exhilaration of alcohol, but our joy unspeakable is found elsewhere. Alcohol abuse will not remedy the problems of life. Alcohol abuse in Scripture is most often connected with dissolute living. To be drunk with wine is to be under its control. So the teaching is clear. The Christians thinking, feeling, and acting are not to be controlled by any influences that lead to foolishness and dissipation, but rather we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Greek civilization had something called a komos, which is a revel, unspeakably ugly. I will not even describe it. And in all of this Phrygian area where... Ephesians is circulating. Undoubtedly, this Greek idea has been bought into as part of the religious culture of the day that they were to involve themselves in riotous living and in, and in, in, in really ugly things. Comus actually was a, a god in the Greek pantheon. So he says, not alcohol, not drugs, nothing should control you but the Holy Spirit in your life. And I want you to notice that 
we read here, be filled with the Spirit. The command, be filled with the Spirit, means come under its sway, learn to be directed by Him, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And note two things in verse 18. First of all, it's command. You, as a believer, are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, the, it's in the imperative mood. It is assumed that provision is made for every believer to comply. It is not an experience for a select few Christians. But every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And also notice that the command is in a present tense. Well translated here. The command is present. The idea then is because of the the Greek uh, present indicative and the present imperative has in mind something that is continuous... The idea is to be being filled, to be constantly filled, to every day seek the outworking of the Spirit in your lives. The Spirit-filled person then is not one who points back to some extraordinary incident in his life in the past and says, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills God's people ongoingly. The truly Spirit-filled person is the one who is concerned with what the Spirit of God is now doing in his everyday life. So I ask, do you live that way? Do you live in daily anticipation of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your lives? So how am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Let me repeat myself and to say a little more. It is not the result of an endowment of some extraordinary gift such as speaking in tongues. That's just totally wrong. Some gifts, by the way, were intimately connected to the production of Scripture, and to seek them now seriously calls into question the sufficiency of Scripture, and I'm convinced that tongues is one of them. You know, I've been in meetings, I've actually preached in services, where people were rolling on the floor. And um, just going wild. Well, what's happening here? Oh, he's being filled with the Spirit. It's not true. You're filled with the Spirit, it brings a sound mind. You become a thinking person. You want to know what's in the text. So, filling with the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. You know, there's a sweet, sweet Spirit in this place, and it's the Spirit of the Lord, some old chorus. Well, you can't feel it. I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit is not is not there to produce a certain feeling in worship. It's not the baptism with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit. All Christians are baptized by one Spirit into one body. When you were regenerated, you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's not to be confused with certain gifts. On the day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be those who had the gifts of casting out demons, and they will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. A person can have a gift and not know Christ. Matthew 7 teaches that. How then are you to obey the command? Because it is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. How are you, believer, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, verses 19 through 21 are grammatically dependent on verse 18. In other words, when we read in verse 18 that we are to be filled with the Spirit, 
Then addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all the heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and so forth, is grammatically dependent on verse 18. And you can't miss that there is a parallel to this passage that will explain to you how to be filled with the Spirit. And that parallel is in Colossians. So keep your finger here. And turn over, if you will, to the third chapter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, 16 through the beginning of 18. Colossians 3, 16 and following. Now look at this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and so forth. Now, you will see that the very same pattern of thought that you find in Ephesians 5 is found here. You see it? Do you? The same pattern, the same ideas are found in these two passages, only this. In Colossians, he replaces the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit with, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the conclusion to which we should come is this. It's clear. You are filled with the Holy Spirit as you saturate your mind with Scripture and obey it in your heart. It's not tongues, it's not prophecy, it's not rolling on the ground, it's not some feeling. It's the Bible. The Spirit-led person is a thinking person who thinks about the Word of God and lives his life in line with the Word of God. So being filled with the Holy Spirit is much more simple and a whole lot more profound than most people think in the church today. Would you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Would you be filled daily? Would you be filled continually? The way it happens is by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And folks, that means this book. It means the Bible. Controlled by the gospel, loving its preaching, loving to read it, indwelling the text, getting the word every day way down in your hearts. You will not be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will not use time well. You will not be wise and discerning if you ignore the Bible. Under the control of God's word, conformed to the image of his son, that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, would you obey the command, be filled with the Spirit? Then I'm telling you, get into the book, fill your mind with the Word, let it control your affections, let it control your thinking, love to hear it preached, love to read it, love to live it out, and then you will be filled continually with the Holy Spirit. Now, he goes on here and he gives us in this immediate text three marks of the Spirit-filled life. Three marks of the Spirit-filled life. The first mark of the Spirit-filled life is a singing heart. A singing heart. 
verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. He didn't say a good voice. He said a singing heart. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Psalms almost certainly means the Psalter. The psalms that we have in the Bible. Passing remark, by the way, psalms were meant to be accompanied with musical instrumentation. So I do believe that it is biblical. That's a great debate in the history of the church to have at least certain musical instruments in worship accompanying the music. But that's another thing for another time. Psalms, hymns, hymns. We have examples of hymns in the New Testament. Most New Testament scholars are agreed that most of Philippians 2, the first part of John 1, and Colossians 1, those high Christological passages, deep, rich, wonderful theology, those were early Christian hymns. And spiritual songs, the word song here is the word that was used in the ancient world for lyric poetry. Lyric poetry. So he's talking about rich biblical content that we are to sing to the Lord and to one another. Spirit-filled worship is not that worship that has the most gyration, but will be characterized by songs of praise to the Lord that are the result of the richly indwelling word of Christ. They will be Christ-centered and Bible-centered and therefore spirit-filled. And such song is also mutual instruction. Notice how he puts it here in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And back there in Colossians, he he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we sing to the Lord in praise, and as we do so, we are instructing one another in the truth of the gospel. Robert Rayburn wrote many years ago, we have reared a generation or two who prefer sentimental songs with highly questionable theology to the greatest Christian poetry that has ever been penned. And he was right then and he's right now. The test of a congregation's commitment to the truth can often be gauged in the words that that congregation loves to sing. It was true in the New Testament era, it was true in the Protestant Reformation, it was true in the great revival of the 18th century, and it's true today. Declension of Christianity has gone hand in hand with a declension in hymnody. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2, there's this wonderful passage in which a section of Psalm 22 is applied to Jesus. It's in Hebrews 2:12, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You know what that passage is saying? It's saying that when we sing our praise to God, that Jesus is our choir master. Did you know that? That's what it's saying, that Jesus is leading our music. That he's the one who is leading our praise before the Father. Calvin says of that, And it is a truth which may serve as a most powerful stimulant and may lead us most fervently to praise God, when we hear that Christ leads our songs and is the chief composer of our hymns. It should revolutionize your view of singing and worship when you understand that Christ is in our midst singing those praises and presenting them gloriously to his Father. 
So we instruct one another by our hymnody. Dr. Clowney said he had a student once. They were talking about this verse. And in class, the student uh, had an opportunity to demonstrate how he would see this verse worked out. So he had the students turn to one another and to sing to one another. Well, I think that was overdoing it a bit, but the, the point was right. We actually instruct and admonish and teach one another when we sing the great hymnody of the church and the great psalms of the Bible. I believe that one of the reasons this congregation sings so incredibly well is because the truth is more and more deeply in our hearts. I believe that it stems from a worshiping heart. So we should have lofty, majestic music. It has nothing to do with the lost, by the way. It really doesn't. We are singing to the Lord. We are instructing one another... And if lost people don't like the hymnody of the church, that's understandable. God may attract and he may repel by our worship according to his own sovereign will. But we aren't singing this for the lost. We care about the lost. We take the gospel to the lost. But we are instructing one another as Christians when we sing to one another in the church. And we are offering worship to the Lord When we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, let the world have their music. The church has its own. Not only that, not only is a melodious heart an indication of a spirit-filled life, so when your husband's singing in the shower some great hymn, and maybe he's not a great singer, don't stop him. It may be the Spirit of God at work in his life. But also a thankful heart is an indication that you're spirit-filled. Oh, well, nothing nothing so grand as, as, as some great experience of casting out demons or speaking in tongues. No, it's much more profound than that. A thankful heart is an indication that the Spirit is working in your heart. He says so in verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Singing praises to God can sweep us on to include thanksgiving. You remember in verse 4 of this chapter, we've already seen an emphasis on thanksgiving. Look at it. Verse 4 of chapter 5, Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Do you remember what I said? A thankful heart, a thankful speech, offering thanks to God, having thankfulness in the heart, and crude and filthy language are incompatible. And our Reformed Fathers gave great emphasis to this. The Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, says that in order to live and die in the comfort of the assurance of Christ's salvation, we must know three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Gratitude. He's delivered me. When I think that from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet I'm unsound and yet I have been saved by Christ. When I think that I'm ugly and undone and depraved and sinful and hell deserving and wrath deserving but he sent his own pure son into this world to suffer and bleed and die in my place. When I think that he has been raised for my justification. When I think that he loves me and intercedes for me and he's coming back for me I have a thankful heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And then also, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be filled with the Spirit is going to show by mutual submission. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A submissive heart, not a rebellious heart, not a hard heart, a tender and a teachable heart. And it's interesting to note about verse 21, two things, that before dealing with order in the home and order in in the workplace and submission to authority, he deals with mutual submission. And then secondly to note that this is a mark of the Spirit-filled life. In other words, arrogant pride and self-centeredness contradict what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are called to walk in lowliness and in love. Romans 12.10, in honor, preferring one another. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or from empty conceit, but in humble-mindedness, each counting the other better than himself. It's Jesus the Master and Lord of all, washing His disciples' feet. So what does this mean? To be filled with the Holy Spirit does not lead lead us to ourselves. It leads us to Christ. Our Savior came in unparalleled humility, and now we are humble with one another. His incarnation and atonement on the cross call us to be humble toward one another. And then the marks go on. If you're filled with the Spirit, wives will be submissive to their husband's leadership. Husbands will really love their wives. Children will be submissive to their parents. Fathers will not exacerbate, exasperate their children. Uh, employers will be careful how they treat their employees. Employees will work for Christ and not for men-pleasing. These are all indications of a Spirit-filled life. So please get out of your minds. The filling with the Holy Spirit is some extraordinary kind of event in which there must be some extraordinary gift. That has been so destructive when it's really very simple. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now that calls to repentance, doesn't it? Somebody can stand up and say, well, you've got to have some some gift to be filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues. Well, you can walk out of here and say, I guess I just don't have it. You hear this, it calls you to repent. And me, to repent. Let's... Let's bring it to a conclusion this way. Look, here's Paul's logic. What he's saying in this passage, connecting it with Colossians 3, is this. Look carefully how you walk. Be wise, Christians. Know what time it is and use it with care. Jesus is coming. To do this requires that we be filled with the Holy Spirit moment by moment. This means to be filled with God's Word through which the Spirit works And when you do this, you will sing together with a deep devotion. You will be thankful to God in your hearts. You will seek the good of your neighbor. And it will show in all kinds of practical ways in the way in which you live. That's what Paul is saying. Simple. Profound. So let me bring this one final salvo. Do you see how much depends upon knowing 
Do you see how much depends upon your knowing the Word? The Spirit uses His Word to fill us, to sanctify us, to help us to understand the time in which we live, and even to sing together. Does some Christian here need to confess the sin of neglecting God's Word? And the reason that you're not being humble with one another, the reason that you could care less perhaps about singing the great hymns of, of joyful praise to God, or, or perhaps the reason you're not even concerned with the return of Christ is because you're not in the Bible. How can you expect to grow as a Christian if you don't spend time, I mean much time, saturating your mind and heart in the Bible, which is God's Word? So, young man, if your young lady writes you a love letter, I'll bet you wouldn't put it on a shelf and let let it gather dust for weeks. God, who loves his people, has sent us greater than that. He has sent his own word. Are we letting it gather dust? Do we read it just in a perfunctory way? Let's just, I want to get through my daily reading. Is it controlling the way I think? So that in turn it will control my affections and the way I behave. So that the world will see Christ in me, who is the only hope. I read recently that Clarence Darrow was once in Chicago. You remember Darrow, many of you will, from the Scopes trial. He was in Chicago, and he was there to represent the atheist position on a panel. There was a Roman Catholic, there was a Protestant, there was a Jew, and there was Clarence Darrow, the atheist, The Roman Catholic stood up and told why he was a Roman Catholic. The Protestant told why he was a Protestant. The Jew told why he was a Jew. Then Clarence Darrow got up and said, I noticed that none of you referenced the Bible one time. I guess you don't take the Bible seriously anymore. You know why I'm an atheist? I don't take the Bible seriously either. And that's where we are in the evangelical church in America. I know there are exceptions to this. I'm generalizing. We don't care about the Bible anymore. So we fall back on mystical experiences and all kinds of emotional things that come along. But let me tell you, I've told you in the past, I will tell you again and again, if you depend on those things when hard times come, those things will let you down and let you down hard. But if you are square upon the word, when hard times come, you will say, God hasn't changed, His word hasn't changed, His promises haven't changed. Yeah, it's hard. But it'll be like the lady that was dying. The Christian lady about to go to heaven. Her minister came. Sister, are you sinking? Sister, are you sinking? She got so tired of it. She said, how can you sink through a rock? (laughs) That's where we are. That's where we need to be. Squarely upon the rock, the word, the promise. So Covenant Presbyterian Church and each member here, if you hold to the book, if we hold to the book as a congregation, we will live. If we give it lip service, we will be a shadow of ourselves. If we repudiate it, we will die. If we are passionate about the Word, learning it, hearing it, hearing it preached, read, teaching it, living it out, if we are passionate for the Word, then we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If we do not, then the words of Revelation 3, 15 and 16 will be applicable to us. 
When Jesus said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Joshua of old in a covenant renewal service said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That needs to be the attitude of everyone here and the attitude of this church. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will love His Word. We will be filled with His Spirit. We will act upon the Bible's precepts. We will promote its message in our lives with our children and our homes and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Covenant Presbyterian Church, if we do that, then we will be a God-honoring church. And if you do that, you will be obeying the command, be filled with the Spirit. And I'm always concerned that you can hear a sermon, maybe even turn it off. Or maybe even be moved by it somewhat, and you go out the door and you forget it. Don't forget this. It's God's command. He's told you what to do. Saturate that mind and heart of yours in His Word. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.